Welcome everybody. Welcome everybody. Okay, I wanted to make sure that there were some people out there. Wow. Today we're going to be wrapping up our mini two-part series on church leadership. And I have a favor to ask of you because I think you might be a little overwhelmed if you didn't pick up a note sheet this week. It will certainly help you to navigate, uh, and you'll see that there's a really nice chart that I hope that will become a really good resource. So if you haven't picked up a note sheet, I encourage you to go ahead and pick. I think note sheets are important every week, but I think this week is exceptionally necessary to follow along. Before we jump into our, ser uh, our final sermon on church leadership, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the summer sermon series that we're going to be doing this summer entitled Standing on the Promises of God. We know that as Christians, we are challenged in our faith. Sometimes that challenge comes in the form of temptations. Sometimes and often that comes from the world's, uh, the way the Christian life and faith is a counterculture to the way the world does things and see things. And of course, we all have the challenges that are brought about because of the inevitable and painful challenges of living in a sinful and fallen world. Let's face it, brothers and sisters in Christ, fear and grief, loss and doubt, discouragement and anxiety and temptation, sickness, disappointments. I was just listening to Tom's prayer and, 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 and the deception of this cunning enemy that we are up against day in and day out. All those things are real. And they all have the potential, I think, to cause us to waver in our faith and doubt. But, but take courage, dear brothers and sisters in Christ today, because whatever you're facing today or whatever we will face in the future, we can be certain of this, that God's promises are real, that God's presence is there, and he provides everything that we need. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So take this as a personal invitation today for you to suggest to us, the teaching team, a promise to be preached. Tell us how it's meaningful to you. Tell us how God worked through that promise uh, sitting there. I almost bawl every time I hear that, that song about God's goodness. Oh my goodness, I just get all choked up. But this is an opportunity for you to testify of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And it's not a requirement, don't take it that way, but if, if your promise is selected and you feel comfortable, we'd love to have you come up here and share a two to three minute uh, testimony about how that promise has impacted your life. And that sermon series starts next week, okay? So here, here's the thing, I still need about four more promises to complete that sermon series as we need to. And so. If you have a promise that you'd like to share, a proposed promise, may I ask you to send that to me before this Tuesday, and I meet with the teaching team at miltjohnson at chantillybible.org. I can't promise it this late in the game that I'm going to take everyone's promise, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys this week. Turning our attention now to this week's sermon topic, this week's focus, allow me to ask how many of you have been swept up into this crumble cookie craze that is sweeping Northern Virginia. While crumble cookies success is certainly interesting, the hundred plus flavors that crumble has created since it was established is even more astonishing to me. 
Crumble cookies feature four to five uh, cookies a week, and new cookies. And, and that menu is constantly adding new flavors. Each cookie is as big as a CD. Remember what those were, CDs? <laughs> they ought to add $4 a cookie, I can say that. Making it easy to share, you know? They have almost like a cookie cutter thing now that you can cut it in fours and share it with your neighbor. Recently, I saw an interview where Crumble Cookies um, founders were explaining why they felt that they had been such a success. Jason McNown and um, Sawyer Hemsley are their names. And here's what they said. They said, above all, our bakers are committed to the very best of ingredients and precisely following our recipes. This allows, they went on to say, us to accurately re replicate the baker's skill from one baker to another assures the quality of that product and it provides a consistent and satisfying experience for all our customers. And I thought about it in my preparations for this sermon. It occurred to me that like a recipe that needs to be precisely followed, in the scriptures, specifically the New Testament, God provides for us clear instruction, clear instructions on how church leadership are to function and the church is to follow. And here's the thing. If our church is to be all that God intends for it to be, thriving and alive, growing in the grace and in the power of Christ, resilient and tough, spirit-driven, genuinely impacting this lost world with the good news of the gospel, replicating these priorities in the next generation by biblical discipleship. And I'm so glad Mia's here, standing up here today and saying, I first fell in love with Jesus and wanted to serve him here. If that's going to happen, we must, church, continually strive to understand and be fully committed together to precisely follow God's recipe, God's instructions for the biblical responsibilities and expectations of our leaders and God's expectations for us as a church to serve together. Now to help us this morning to understand how that happens, just like I did last week with the deacons, I want to ask and answer four questions today. And to get us started, I want to talk a moment about what is a biblical elder. What is a biblical elder? Today we're going to see in Scripture, let me summarize, and then we'll go back and we'll dig into this a little bit. Here is my working definition. I know it's long. That's why I asked you to have a note sheet there. But I'm going to try to explain this in great detail as we walk through this. Here's what I say. Elders are a group of spirit-appointed men, plural, plural, okay, who under the headship of our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, have the primary responsibility of shepherding, overseeing, nurturing, protecting, leading the local church through the faithful ministry or teaching of the word of God, and by their godly example, a priority ingredient in God's recipe is servant leadership. Got all that? It's on the screen there. Now, I want to emphasize that last point there because, because godly and effective leadership never loses their awareness that they themselves are still sheep, okay? And that we are utterly dependent on the grace of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate servant leader. 
In John chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, Jesus, uh, before he goes to the cross, says this to his disciples. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, Jesus says, pay attention, he's saying, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I love this last phrase. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. God says a servant, a leader, a godly servant, leader is a servant. Looking back at our definition, please also note the emphasis on the plurality of elders. I place that in that definition because consistently throughout the New Testament, we see a pattern where the local church is shepherded or led by a plurality of elders. In, first, in, in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, for example, the apostle Paul left Titus in Crete and then he instructed him saying, he instructed him saying, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. Now there's a whole lot I could say here about the benefits of leadership made up of a plurality of godly men. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, for example, we read, Where there is no guidance, a people fails. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Here at Chantilly Bible Church, our elders meet together biweekly to pray for our church members. We discuss pastoral issues, and together we make decisions regarding the future direction of our church. You can see our men that serve in that role up onto the screen there. Whenever we do not have full agreement among the elders in making a decision, all the elders commit to studying and praying and seeking the will of God together until consensus is achieved. In this way, the unity and the harmony that the Lord so desires in his local church will begin with those individuals he has appointed to shepherd this church. Additional benefits to plurality of elders include, but not, not, not there's probably plenty more of thoughts I could give you, balancing out our weaknesses. We come in all different shapes and sizes and ideas. It lightens our workload as we share the load. And it provides accountability, which every godly leader needs in their life. You should also know that the New Testament, in the New Testament, there are three interchangeable titles used to identify the office of leadership we're talking about here. Pastors, poimene, elders, presbyteros, all right? Uh, I'm terrible in Greek. Overseers, episkopos, okay? In the New Testament, these three terms are all equivalent, but each seems to have a, a, a slightly different emphasis in what an elder does and what the elders are. The title elder, for example, connotes a man's dignity and standing. He's respected in the church. The term overseer describes the function that he performs, the duties that he performs. A pastor is that calling to shepherd, the teaching, the protecting, the leading. All these different titles have a different emphasis on what an elder does. And you should also know that in the New Testament, 
there are a couple times where we find all three titles being in the same passage interchangeably, being used interchangeably, but all referring to the same group of church leaders. For example, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, Paul sent for the, to, uh, to Ephesus and called the elders. What am I? My tongue is not working today. Press buteros, okay? Uh, my Greek teacher would be proud. I don't think so. Of the church to come. You know, come to him, okay? And then down in verse 28, you see that he admonishes these very same men saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, right? To care, the shepherding here, feed them. That's the same verb there for the church which he obtained. Uh, that phrase really, which he obtained with his own blood. Practically speaking, that means, that tells me that even though our lay elders may spend fewer hours per week shepherding, and even though they don't necessarily serve in precisely the same way as a paid pastor or elder would, we are nonetheless all elders. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul seems to allow for some distinctions in focus and the intensity of our roles when he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul is obviously not suggesting here that some elders will not need to teach because he makes it very clear in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that all elders must be able to teach. But he does acknowledge, he does expect that some elders will be particularly devoted to the teaching of God's word than others. And thus, while there may be distinctions drawn between uh, vocational and lay elders, in terms of focus and our intensity, our fundamental character as under-shepherds of this flock is indeed shared. That responsibility is shared, and we will all stand before the Lord one day and give an account for how well we cared and shepherded this church. The next question that I want to ask and answer is what qualifications must an elder possess? And in the scriptures, unlike, remember in, in, when we talked about deacons, there was one list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Above that, Paul lists the qualifications of an elder. He also does the same in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. They're almost parallel lists, but there is some differences. So I thought it would be helpful if I were to prepare a chart comparing the qualifications listed in both books and then providing corresponding definitions. Before we look at those qualifications, let me point out one thing here, that just like the qualifications of a deacon, we see once again an emphasis here on God's desire for leaders to have godly hearts, character. Skill is important, but if they don't have the, the godly character, they're not going to be effective in their service, either as deacons or elders. So let's look at these qualities here. You can look at them on the chart in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm just going to ratchet through these. You have them in your sheets there. You can look at them later in greater detail. An aspiration to be in that office. An elder must possess the inner desire to serve God and to care for his people. And so it says it's a good thing. And notice it says the godly discipline to pursue it. Okay? 
Above reproach appears in both books, in chapter 3, verse 2 of 1 Timothy, and 1, 6, uh, verse 6 and 7, above reproach. An elder must have no concerns in his life that anyone could hold up and criticize the gospel or the church. Next slide, please. Husband of one wife appears in both books. Not an adulterer, not a flirt, does not show romantic interest in other women, including, I include, pornography in that. Okay? Sober-minded, both books in sense, disciplined is very similar. An elder must exercise self-control and mastery over his appetites. Next slide, please. Not a drunkard in either book, it appears. An elder must not abuse any substance that would enslave his heart or impair his judgment to do what God has called him to do. Self-control is in both books. An elder is sensible. The word temperate means well-balanced. He does not cheapen the ministry of the gospel message by foolish or sinful behavior. He understands the cost. Respectable appears only in 1 Timothy. An elder is honorable. He is dignified. His life is orderly and well-disciplined, lived out, okay? Hospitality, interesting word, both, both in both texts. An elder is a lover of strangers. That's what it literally means. His heart and his home is open for caring for people, especially people that are strange or, that's wrong, strange to the church, new or newcomers, okay? Elders should want strange people too, but, okay. Able to teach, both books. An elder knows biblical doctrine well and can explain it to people. And I like this part. He, he must be able to recognize and refute false doctrine that endangers the church and deal with it. Okay? It's like a poison. Violent, not violent. Elders' tempers are to be under control. He is not given not to quarreling or fighting or arguing on a regular basis. Gentle. Uh, only appears in 1 Timothy, power that is under control, forbearing and patient, especially when you are wronged, okay? Not quarrelsome, not quick-tempered. Elders are not to be contentious. They must be able to disagree without being disagreeable, okay? Not a lover of money. I combined it with not greedy in Titus. Money, the things of this world, must not have a grip on an elder's heart. You can't serve both, Jesus says, right? Good managers of his home, submissive children, not insubordinate as I think what Titus uses, and elders cares for his family in a dignified manner that encourages and draws respect from others. Um, not a recent convert, an elder must be humble and mature, have demonstrated that he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And then finally, um, well thought of outside uh, literally means beautiful witness. I love that. I love that. And then, uh, and only in Titus, there's three more here, a total. A lover of good, that means not merely doing good, but also he gets great joy out of seeing that goodness lived out in the church body and in the believers that make of it. And then upright, an elder should be a man of integrity, who sticks by his word, who practices what he preaches. And then holy, obviously, means to be set apart in his behavior, standing out as someone who is following the Lord Jesus Christ with his whole heart. Now, something interesting as I looked at these, uh, these qualifications, I saw two very practical reasons that we should look at them and study them. First, obviously, these lists clarify for us as a church the essential qualities of the men who are to be selected and confirmed as leaders of our church. Which, by the way, if you look at all these qualities, and I want to point to that in a minute, 
are healthy and growing qualities of any believer that all of us should desire to possess, okay? That's why I love 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Peter's concluding his instructions to the elders there, and he reminds them, hey, don't forget this primary responsibility. Starting in verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flocks of God, flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eager not domineering over them in your charge, but listen to this, but being, but being examples to the flock. That's one of the primary responsibilities given to elders. Now, on the other side of that coin, if you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, you see that the church members are commanded in this way. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Wow, that is a very sobering thing for an elder to read. And thus, my friends, while elders are meant to exemplify these traits, when I look at Scripture, all Christians are called to exhibit, exhibit these traits. And so today, as we consider these characteristics, these essential qualities of our church leaders, it should give us wisdom, and we select and we confirm elders. That's, that's a given. But here's the other side of that that I think applies to all of us today. It challenges also, as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, that we need to be growing spiritually because these qualities should be true of any believer who wants to glorify God and lead people to him. And so I stopped here and I wrote, Milt Johnson, where do you see yourself needing to grow and these qualities in your life, in your ministry. And I ask you the same thing today. Where does God want us to grow so that we can serve him with greater glory and lead people to him? The next question I want to ask and answer is what are the duties of an elder in a church? And I want to turn into the scriptures. I know I'm flying here today, but turn into Acts 20 with me, if you will. Let me give you a little background. Acts 20 uh, these are Paul's final words of encouragement and admonishment to the elders of Ephesus. And in these words, I see several characteristics and responsibilities that an elder is to carry out within the church. The first being that an elder must shepherd the church. I love that picture. It's my favorite word picture when I think about being a pastor. Acts 20, 28. Here's what it says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I think the New American Standard says, be on guard yourselves. Why? And all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, which he obtained with his own blood. And clearly, as I look at this text, a primary mission of every godly elder is to lead. It's to teach. It's to protect. It's to love and serve the fellow church members that God has entrusted us with and the way that a shepherd cares for the sheep and his flock. Why? So that that congregation might know Jesus more intimately. So that that congregation might obey him more faithfully. And so that congregation might reflect Christ's character more clearly, both individually and corporately as a church, so that we might reflect Jesus more to one another and to the surrounding communities that God has given us to serve. And personally, I gotta stop here and say, this responsibility takes like 20 notches and sobers my heart as I realize 
that the, the sheep that I am looking after are not mine, but God's. In fact, it tells me they were purchased with his own blood. And one day, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, I, along with all the other elders in this church, will have to give an account to God for our guidance, leadership, and care of this body. That's why. That's why we need your prayers. That's the second thing. Pray. You know, the elders are to pray for the church here. And you need to pray for us, as we'll see in a few minutes. Elders are supposed to be devoted to praying for the spiritual health and vitality of the people. We're to be lifting up their needs. But according to James chapter 5, verse 14, we are specifically called on to pray for the sick in the church. Third, elders are to teach the church. We are to be faithfully teaching the people the word of God without compromise. Without compromise. We know that the message we're going to share isn't always going to be popular. And frankly, it's going to be hard. But we must not. Paul said, I taught the entire counsel of God. Right? And we need to oversee as the elders of this church all the teaching that takes place in this church. All the way down in that children's wing. All the way through the adult teaching here. The home groups. We are responsible to make sure that the teaching is pure and accurate. Sound doctrine. We are, as Pastor Steve used to remind us, the white blood cells of this church when it comes to spiritual doctrine, making sure that the body is filled, filled with spiritually healthy doctrine. I love Acts 20, verse 32. These are the final parting shots before Paul kisses and says goodbye to these elders, almost a benedictional format. And now he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance, give the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We are to teach the people. Fourth, we are to lead the church. Um, we are to be continually seeking the will of God for the direction of this church. How do we do that? By constantly praying together, by studying the scriptures together, and by wisely considering the needs and the opportunities that exist within a church with the people that God has brought here. We need to know the people. We need to be amongst the people if we're going to serve well. Remember, the priority ingredient of, of recipe for God's leadership and elders is servant leadership. We're following Jesus' example. And fifth, we must guard the church. Look at verses 28 through 30 here. Pay careful attention, Paul says, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after me, man, this would, be, this would be really scary. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Elders are to constantly be on guard against false teaching and behavior that is either inside the church or outside the church that will distract us and pull us away from the truth. And sixth, elders must equip the church. Elders must equip the church. Remember, and along with the deacons, as we saw last week, we are not responsible for carrying out all the ministry within this church. If we do, we're not following a biblical example. We are instead to equip the body to serve alongside of us and among each other in love. 
Each of us have been given a gift. Remember, I said last week, there are no bench sitters when it comes to serving within the church. What gift did God give you? What ability has he given you that will allow us, as you serve within this body, to see and understand more fully what it means to follow Christ? Where are you serving? Where are you serving? The final question I want to ask and answer today is what are the responsibilities the church has towards leadership, towards the elders? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, we see that we should honor them. We should honor them. Honor those who instruct us, it says. Let the elders who rule well be considered, uh, considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, what does it mean to honor our spiritual leaders? Well, certainly, it's a recognition. There's a recognition here implied that we recognize them, uh, honor them respect them. But in addition, it's obvious, as we'll see in just a minute in verse 18, that when we call a pastor into pastoral ministry and he does his job well, we have a responsibility to compensate him for their work. Interestingly, the word that's used here in verse 17 for labor means exhaustive, tiresome labor. And I thought it was interesting, as I did some research this week, I found an article in Forbes magazine in 2014. And there the author identified or ranked the leadership in a church number five out of nine of the most difficult and burdensome jobs to hold in the, in the United States. And studies show that the energy used for preaching a 30-minute sermon would be equivalent to an eight-hour workday. I, I can believe that. <laughs> I take naps on Sunday. No, none of that, of course, means that church leaders don't love their ministry. You either love it or you're crazy, is what my friend always tells me. Whether we're being paid or volunteered, being a leader in a church, although incredibly sobering, as you see some of the passages that we've looked at here, is one of the most fulfilling, rewarding positions a person could possess. And one day, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, when our chief shepherd appears, those who have served well are told shall receive the unfolding crown of glory. Let's look at a second responsibility in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We're to know and esteem our elders, our leaders very highly in love. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect, literally the Greek there is no, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. These instructions in the original Greek here carry a hyperbole emphasis that can't really be translated into English. They use very highly here. Uh, but simply put, the love of these believers was to be joined with their esteem and the esteem with their love. And they were both to abound in superabundance toward those who lead and teach them well. Verse 13 tells us that we are to be at peace with one another. That's another way that we are responsible. And with this simple command, Paul says that a great way we show our esteem and honor and love our leaders in the church is to put away all the silly squabbles and silly arguments that exist. Fourth, in Hebrews chapter 13, as we've already noted, we're instructed to obey and submit to our leadership. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning. <laughs> for the, for that, what would that be of any advantage to you? And, and the general message that I take away from that verse seems to be, hey, don't make life any harder than it already is for your spiritual leaders. For what benefit, he says, would that be to anyone in a church? And nothing, I can tell you, zaps a leader's energy and motivation more quickly than when people refuse to follow. Now, let me add a caveat here. I am not suggesting or talking about following a leader who is abusing his authority. God does not call any of us to blindly follow leaders no matter what they do or what they say. But when our leaders are genuinely seeking God's best for our church, we should listen to them and follow their lead. Let me say something very personal here. One characteristic of a godly leader is approachability and teachability. So please hear my heart here. If you ever find yourself disagreeing with me or any one of the elders, would you come and talk to us about it? Please don't just leave. We love you and we want to work things out. Fifth, throughout the scriptures, we are urged to pray for our leaders. Pray for their physical and spiritual health. Pray for their families. You've seen the enormity of the responsibility that they carry. Pray that you, God would give them wisdom and strength in carrying out their responsibility, especially decision-making. Pray that God would grant them sensitivity in dealing with difficult issues. And pray that they would work together in unity as a team. Satan would love nothing more than to cause discord among the leadership. Sixth, according to 1 Timothy 5.18, we should give financially to the church. Quoting Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, Paul says here, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the mill and the laborer deserves his wages. You need to understand that it's all of us giving together each week that allows our pastoral team to devote the time and energy necessary to fully serve the body and meet the demands of ministry. What a blessing that is. And finally, seventh. One of the ways we come alongside, uh, one of the ways we support our elders is to come alongside of them and thank them. Thank them and come alongside of them. Several years ago, I read a book by uh, author uh, Bruce Larson. It was called Wind and Fire. I don't even know if it's still around. But he made some points, interesting points, that I think are fitting as we wrap up our talk here about the sand hill cranes. He notes in there that these large birds who fly great distances and across continents even have three remarkable qualities that I think are uh, good examples to us. Fitting. First, they rotate leadership. No one bird stays out in front all the time. And then second, apparently they only choose leaders that can handle turbulence. And then third, I love this one, all during the time one bird is leading, the rest are honking affirmation. <laughs> Not a bad example for a church. <laughs> Certainly we need leaders who can handle turbulence. We need leaders who are aware 
what they need to be doing and faithful to do it. But most of all, we need a church where we're all honking encouragement, serving together. And I can't think of a better way than to end this sermon than by celebrating the Lord's table together today. As we prepare our hearts now to celebrate the Lord's table, elders, deacons, leaders within this church, we've looked at some pretty heavy responsibilities and challenges and demands that God makes on our lives and our ministries here over the last couple weeks. I wonder, has God spoken to your hearts? Has, has he spoken to my about some needed changes? Are you, can you say with confidence, do you know you're serving in those capacities exactly as you should? Where do you need to change? Where do you need to grow? I'm certainly searching. Congregation, can it be said of you as we prepare our hearts to celebrate our common union together today? Are you serving? Are you getting along with each other? Are you honoring and submitting and supporting and showing an abundance of esteem and love to those who serve you as your leaders? Are you praying with them? Are you coming alongside of them? You know, whether it's rotating or flapping, somebody said like uh, angels in the outfield, we should all be going like this now, you know. Rotating, flapping, helping, or serving, or honking. A flock that is a healthy flock is one that's doing it and serving together. Amen? So I want to take some time here. I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving the Lord's table to come forward. And we're going to follow the same uh, process that we have been following now since COVID hit. I want to give you all some time to think about those and any other thing. The scriptures say, as believers, we're welcome to come to this table. But it also says, let your heart, let you examine your own heart and see that if you're coming in a worthy manner. If there's areas in our lives that we know is hindering our fellowship with God or with one another, let God search your heart and confess that. And after you've had a time to reflect on that as the music's playing, just get up and come up and pick up an element and go back to your chair. Remember, it takes a few seconds to take that off. They've gotten a lot better, I think, but it will take a few seconds. And then let's partake of it together after we've all been able to pick up our own. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's allow God to search our hearts as we prepare now to celebrate the Lord's table together.